You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are continuing the conversation on infant feeding. If you did not already, definitely tune into last week's episode, where we talk in detail about breast milk, breastfeeding, potential barriers to breastfeeding. We talk about infant formula and formula composition and ingredients, we went there. We were joined last week as well as this week by two incredible special guests, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, who's a board-certified pediatrician, co-author alongside Dr. Porto, our other guest, of the Pediatrician's Guide to Feeding Babies and Toddlers, and most recently, Medical Research Director for Bobby Labs. Dr. Anthony Porto is a board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Yale, and Chief Medical Director of Bobby Labs. We want to disclose that this episode is brought to you in partnership with Bobby Labs, the scientific research arm of Bobby. The goal of this episode is to provide you with the latest science on infant nutrition. We will not be talking about or endorsing specific products, including Bobby Formula. As with any and all of our content, we have complete and independent control over what we are presenting. Again, we are not endorsing any products or brands. We're not endorsing formula feeding over breastfeeding. We are simply providing expert information on infant feeding generally. And I, Jess, am a scientific research mentor for Bobby Labs as well and serve as a data impact expert to help design and review studies on the topic of infant feeding. So let's get into it. We want to continue the conversation, but this week we're going to talk about infant feeding trends. We'll talk about European formula. We'll talk about the formula shortage. We'll talk about proper storage. We're going to talk about it all. So to kick things off, we have to talk about a study. So Dina and Anthony recently published a study, which we'll link in our show notes, which revealed that nearly one in five U.S. parents reported using at least one unregulated infant infant feeding practice. The practices identified, such as illegally imported European infant formulas, toddler formulas used for infants, donor milk from unregulated sources, and homemade infant formulas, pose both nutritional and safety concerns. Anthony, how did we get here? What's going on? Set the stage here. Yeah, it's so you know it's so interesting. You know, Dina and I, when we I, when I'm, when my eight year old was basically an infant in my lap, we were writing that the book for parents about how to feed your infant and your toddler. At that time, you know, it was a question and answer book, and at the time, one of our questions that we that we asked for parents to answer was. Is it safe to use European formulas? Because we were noticing patients in our practices asking about these formulas. And at the time, we said, hey, it's fine as long as it's FDA registered. We didn't really know at that point what that even, you know, what that meant. And so we started looking at what FDA regulation is. And then over time, started noticing these new trends. And that's what led us to, to um, do this study to get an idea of how frequently these trends and whether what we were seeing in our practice was also true 
nationwide. So Dina, take us through your study. How is it designed? Let, let's talk about it in a little bit more detail. Sure. So what we did was we did this anonymous cross-sectional voluntary electronic survey that we sent to the active prescribers to a baby food subscription company, Listserv, in April and May of 2021. And of note, this was right before the infant formula shortage happened. So our data, you know, will probably show more of an effect of these, um, you know, non-AAP recommended infant feeding trends if we did it during the infant formula shortage. And we basically just wanted to get basic demographics, what parents were doing with infant feeding, um, you know, in a non-judgmental, anonymous way. All right. So Anthony, you know, obviously I know we're going to really get into this, but can you set the stage? How is infant formula regulated in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, pre-1980, it was really registered, basically regulated in the same way any food would be um, through the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And what happened in the late 70s was there were a few infants that were noted to have poor weight gain and low chloride levels. And it was really um, a very astute pediatric nephrologist who said, I really don't see this very often, but I'm seeing it in a very short period of time. He then also noted that these kids were on the same formula. And so what they did was they tested the formula and it was noted that that formula, even though it stated it had a certain chloride level, had low chloride levels. And while that's important is that there were two things that happened. One, the formula company had decreased the amount of chloride in their formula because of studies showing how salt, so sodium chloride, can lead to high blood pressure, so they decreased it. And they also took away their quality check to ensure that there was the right amount of chloride as it would stay on the label. And that led to the Infant Formula Act. And the Infant Formula Act has really two purposes in my mind of why this is so important. One is it makes sure that you check the levels, but it really is now makes infant formula its own food. So it really is one of the only foods that has its own act to follow. One of the interesting things is even though this doctor was astute to figure this out, it took a while to take all the formula off the market. So recalls were, weren't really coordinated. So the Open Formula Act also helped. Dina, can you talk to us about any like labeling or nutrient requirements or any associated regulations that we should know about for this conversation? Sure. So, you know, the U.S. Infant Formula Act and regulations is one of the most detailed acts of Congress. You know, an infant formula, like Anthony said, is one of the most regulated foods in the U.S. So the act, you know, not only establishes the nutritional and quality and process processing requirements that um, must be met before formula to be considered unadulterated. So interestingly, you know, the FDA doesn't quote-unquote approve formulas, but before they can be marketed, they have to register, notify, and submit written verifications to the FDA. And the FDA does a lot to monitor formulas. You know, they, they ensure that the manufacturer is responsible to test the composition of the formula during the production and shelf life to make sure, you know, what's on the label is actually in the formula. So what happens, um, you know, pre the formula never happens again. Um, formulas have to maintain records of all complaints and protocols for recall. So if a baby becomes sick potentially from a formula, you know, that formula has to be recalled in a very rapid manner, which we noticed a year ago um, with the great formula, you know, shortage that happened. Um, manufacturers have to provide data to support, and this is very important, that there's adequate nutrition for adequate growth of infants, you know, so these, these formulas just can't come on the market. They have to show that they're good for babies and they allow babies to grow properly. And also there's a ton of good manufacturing practices with quality controls to prevent adulteration from microorganisms such as salmonella and, of course, um, coronavirus. There's a lot of order plans in place, so FDA goes and inspects these formulas to confirm that they meet all the nutritional and safety standards. So the FDA will go in annually, um, at least to these plans, to make sure that everything is being followed to the T. 
And there's also um, very specific labeling and nutrient requirements. You know, so there's very um, specific nutrient specifications, including the minimum amounts for 29 nutrients and maximum amounts for nine of those nutrients. So every US FDA review formula has to have nutrients within those um, guidelines. And there's also very specific labeling guidelines. You know, so every label in the U.S. has to be in English. You know, there's um, important instructions on them, like how to mix the formula and proper measurements. Because, you know, if a parent, if anybody mixes a formula um, too dilute or too concentrated, that can obviously lead to electrolyte imbalances and malnutrition and seizures. You know, and malnutrition. Um, there's also, you know, other things that are very important, like expiration dates and you know a statement whether a label indicate uh, whether a formula has iron in it or is low in iron. You know, so there's very specific requirements. So there's a lot that seems to be mistrust in the, uh, you know, the FDA and infant formula in general, but you know, infant formula is very well regulated in the U.S. So you mentioned the formula shortage. I think we have to just you know, address it. Why is it happening? You know, are we still in it? Anthony or Dina, can you sort of set the stage for the shortage? Sure. I mean, I think what happened, um, there was a few things. COVID happened, and like, and what happened with COVID, it, it led to supply chain issues with some of the ingredients. And then on top of it, there was a recall and a closure of one of the main factories in the United States that was a supplier of, of about 40% of the infant formula in the United States. And what that led to was really full circle for us, right? Because what that led to was um, the Biden administration, the White House saying, hey, we need to get more formula here quickly. And that was through Operation Fly, where the FDA would review European formulas and international formulas in general and say, okay, they meet the requirements. We will allow them in at least temporarily. And in September, they came up with actual recommendations to see how some of these companies could provide long-term um, supply and be uh, be registered completely through the FDA um, and, and gave the instructions to these companies. What's interesting, if you look at the actual number, I think there's the way the data they look at is like the shelf, like what's the percentage of on shelf of formula. We're in a good place, actually, and we're very close to where we were pre-shortage. The, the One of the issues that still exists is as we mentioned in the first podcast, it was so, there's so many formulas that there still may be difficult to find this particular type of formula. And in addition, parents, understandably, may be still hoarding formula because of the concern that they may not be able to get that specific formula. And there's also distribution that's been difficult. We're hearing about places um, like Hawaii, which may have a difficult time getting more um, distribution. Or even there was an article last week talking about Mississippi parents having a difficult time getting access. So we have come a long way, but we're still going to feel that there's some sense of shortage, um, at least during the early parts of 2000. 23. So even before there was a shortage, people were talking about European infant formulas. I, I remember, you know, I had my son in 2016 and my in-laws, you know, were sending me articles about how European formula is so far superior to American formula. They have different standards. They have better standards, fewer additives. I'm, I'm using air quotes here. And that European formula is closer to breast milk than American formulas. So, Anthony, can you maybe just talk a bit about European infant formulas? You know, how do they get here? Is it legal? You know, are they 
actually superior? Yes, absolutely. So I think the one thing, I, first thing I would say is that European formulas are safe to use and they're regulated in the country where they're supposed to be utilized. And with Operation Fly, when they're brought here, they meet the requirements of the of the FDA. One of the concerns that we have with their use when they're imported here illegally, so what do we mean by that? It means that someone is buying them in Europe, bringing them here. And how are they bringing them here? Are they are they being kept at the right temperatures? Are they being stored correctly? Because that can really change the nutrient degre- the nutrient content of the formula. The other thing that we need to understand is like the stages, right? These formulas come in stages. So if your child is eight months old and you're giving stage one, you're likely fine. But if your child is one month old but you're giving stage two, you may be missing some key ingredients. These labels were not in English and mixing instructions do vary. So typically in the United States, it's two ounces to one scoop, where it's one to one in um, in European most European countries. And even some of the ones that were brought here through Operation Fly, one was like one scoop per 50 mLs, which can be confusing, right? To especially anyone, but also to parents who are exhausted and trying to mix these formulas at night. And so these are things that we really want parents to be aware of. In addition, the definition for what an allergenic formula, we talked a little bit about these extensively hydrolyzed and amino acid-based formulas, which are formulas where the protein is broken down and can treat calcium protein allergy. In Europe, the definition for a hypoallergenic formula is actually just to treat or, I mean, to prevent the actual um, allergy and by that difference, it allows for pro- larger proteins to be in this, which would not be useful in the treatment, but in only in the prevention of milk allergy. So I think all these things are making that that's all these things are the concerns. Now to your question, are they better? They have the same ingredients. The one big difference is the DHA levels, where they are mandating a, a DHA level. Where in the United States, it's either not in some formulas or in variable levels of formula, and the iron levels because they're stage tend to be a little bit lower than the United States. And when we did our first study looking at composition, the majority did not meet the level of fortification of iron, which is one milligram, and some had 0.8 to 0.9, which is a little bit you know, less than iron fortification, but enough according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I, I just wanted to quickly jump in you know, and essentially echo you know, everything that Anthony just said, particularly with regard to or maybe re-emphasize the fact that the, nutri- the nutrient profiles are very similar. The main Major differences are U.S. formulas typically will have more iron, whereas the EU formulas will have more DHA. So on the whole, there's no no evidence to support nutritional superiority of European baby formulas. A lot of the misconceptions that we hear, again, relate to just misunderstanding of how products are regulated in the U.S. versus in the EU or, or European countries specifically. Um, we see a lot of, you know, claims about certain things being banned in the Europe but allowed in the U.S. when in reality they're often just marketed with a different name. And a lot of that kind of plays into this underlying uh, chemophobia or just like a fear, um, you know, with a lack of understanding of chemical compositions. But we've heard these sorts of claims with regard to even things like bread or gluten or wheat in the European countries. And there's actually no evidence that, you know, bread or wheat or gluten is superior in Europe either. So again, I think a lot of this um, 
conception or this preconceived notion that European formula is somehow superior is just not founded on any actual evidence. And Dina and Anthony, just curious, because you said that you did your survey before the shortage, you know, before the supply chain issues. How many of your uh, survey respondents were you reported using European infant formula? Just curious. It's 14 percent. Huh. And that matched before our previous studies, which is, you know, my practice, which is a large New York City practice, about one in five patients were using illegally imported European formulas. I just wanted to note on top of, you know, the potential issues with illegal transport, potentially degrading, you know, the the substances, the formula itself, compromising the, the safety of the formula, compromising the composition of the formula, not being able to read the language of the given canister and, you know, misusing or, or mispreparing. It's much more expensive, right? It's at least four times more expensive if we're talking about schlepping it from Europe to the U.S. in various formats. Exactly. I think one of the the, the cost is definitely real. And just one of the things I just wanted to say to your point about misinformation is when Dean and I were doing our initial study, looking at which were the most popular ones being, you know, imported illegally, most of the blogs online were were affiliated with the companies that were illegally importing them. So they were they were biased in what they were saying and why, and all the the benefits they were listing were really um, associated with the actual company where they could purchase it from. Mm, yeah, financial conflict of interest is a very real thing in a lot of these consumer products. So we talked about, you know, the cost of formula. Then you add in that there's a formula shortage. You know, there there were major, major access issues, and there still are access issues for, you know, for a lot of people. So we know that a lot of people are turning to donor breast milk. Dina, can you sort of set the stage here about unregulated donor breast milk? You know, are people using it? Why is it problematic? So there's human milk obtained from these um, sources other than accredited human milk banks. So across the nation, there's donor milk banks that are, are governed by a set of regulations under the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. You know, so they guarantee that these um, pooled human milks are pasteurized and meet certain regulations versus unregulated donor milk banks where there's these basically Facebook groups that are either dedicated to buying and selling uh, donor breast milk or some of them are dedicated just for parents to um, go on there and say, you know, does anybody have extra breast milk that I can use? Um, so there's plenty of Facebook groups um, that look into this. And there's also, you know, mother-to-mother milk sharing or, um, you know, and this is very altruistic, you know, moms, you know, who have, may have extra breast milk, you know, very, you know, want to help other moms out and want to donate their breast milk to moms that maybe don't have it. Um, so what we found in our study is that 8% of respondents reported using donor breast milk. Um, out of those, you know, 69% of them using donor breast milk acquired it from the hospital, so a safe source. Um, but 36% of the parents obtained it from unregulated sources, including from someone that they knew, like a close family, you know, friend or, you know, relative, or from over the internet, so randomly from these Facebook groups or donations from the mom Facebook groups. Unfortunately, you know what the FDA and the AP say about this is that you know there's no safety regulations over these direct mother-to-mother you know milk sharing and from these unscreened donors over the internet. You know, an informal milk sharing from a single donor, the problem is is that it might lead to a higher risk of infectious contamination than these pasteurized milk from pooled donors from these you know donor uh, national donor milk banks, um, since the potential contaminant is not diluted through the donor pool. 
And there's also risk, of course, of bacterial and viral contamination if the donor breast milk is not collected in a sterile manner or is properly stored or transported under appropriate conditions. And besides infectious risks in formal milk sharing, there's also a risk of contamination with environmental toxins, such as pesticides and mercury and medications and herbs and illegal drugs and even cow's milk. You know, so there's recent studies showing the, you know, that when you purchase milk over donor breast milk over the internet, which which you think you're getting is not always what you're getting, because if they're being sold, some of these um, places might be contaminating the breast milk with cow's milk to get more profit. So and, you know, and oftentimes moms that are seeking them are moms with cow's milk protein, babies with cow's milk protein allergy or preemie infants, and they're actually getting cow's milk, which is not good for those babies. Now, what about, you know, Anthony, I think you, you referenced this earlier that, you know, the formulas, they're recommended for very specific ages, right? We've heard of some parents using toddler formulas in place of infant formulas. So can you maybe just talk about like, what is the difference between a toddler formula and an infant formula? And why might this be a bad idea? Sure, definitely. I mean, so when we looked at the study, about 5% of parents reported using toddler formula in their infants. And I would probably say the reason for this is because of marketing, right? Because if you go to the store, it's a purple infant formula, it's a purple toddler formula, it's confusing. Sometimes toddler formula can be a little bit more affordable than the uh, than the infant formula complement. And if you you know, my opinion is that we shouldn't even have toddler formula on the market because I don't think toddler formula is very necessary. Toddler formula also is not regulated as well. So when you buy one toddler formula and go to another one, it may have different protein levels, different vitamin levels. Um, Some studies have shown that toddler formulas could be helpful to ensure that toddlers get enough DHA and vitamin D and iron. But when you look at those three levels, they're very variable depending on which one that you purchase. I think the other concern is that, as we just saw with the infant formula recall, the when they're, they're these facilities that make infant formula are checked annually, where the toddler formula they're checked every three to five years, so they don't have to follow the same stringent rules to ensure um, that there's purity of the of the infant formula of the formula. In addition, ninety percent of the formulas that we looked at contained added sweeteners and additional sugars, and that really can set your child up to taste, um, to like certain taste preferences of liking foods that are sweeter and can lead to long-term association with cardiovascular disease, obesity, and and extra weight gain. So the other thing that we heard a lot about were um, homemade infant formulas. And, you know, again, we just want to acknowledge, I can't imagine being, you know, a parent to an infant during a shortage, you know, not being able to breastfeed for whatever reason and just being in a panic. You know, you have to feed your infant. So we understand that a lot of people in an act of desperation were trying to figure out ways to make homemade infant formulas. But we have to caution against this. And obviously, we're going to talk about this in in detail. We know that the FDA, the CDC, the AAP, they all recommend against homemade infant formulas for reasons that we will explain here. A lot of the formulas, I, I just did a quick Google search And there are so many homemade baby formula recipes that are circulating, a lot that are recommending powdered goat's milk, a lot that are recommending mixing powdered goat's milk with things like Pedialyte, Enfilite. I'm just looking through some of these recipes quickly here. So can you, you know, talk about this, Dina? You know, what? let's set the stage for this issue. Why is it a problem? 
home? What are the potential risks? Let's get into it. So again, our data was before the formula shortage, and we we saw that two percent of respondents using formula were making their own formula. Like you said, there was you know a ton of recipes online. We saw an increase in it when a, um, a well-known reality star you know widely published her homemade infant formula using like I think it was raw goat milk that was um you know on the internet. So as you said, the FDA and the CDC and the AP recommend against it since it may lack essential nutrients for proper infant growth. You know the FDA has received reports of infants hospitalized and infant death from consuming homemade infant formula. And the CDC has even issued a warning on infants fed homemade alkaline diet formula, which caused vitamin D deficient rickets, severe hypocalcemia, even cardiorespiratory failure and hypothyroidism, which can can cause severe developmental delays. Um, And since many of these recipes call for unpasteurized cow or goat's milk and formulas may be prepared or stored in an unsterile manner, there's a high risk of bacterial contamination. You know, many of these formulas call for many ingredients. If you get like 10 different ingredients from 10 different stores, you know, one of those ingredients is contaminated, that whole batch of formula is contaminated. And it's also, you know, formula is a formula. It has very specific ratios and ingredients in it. And, you know, if you, it's not like making a cake. If you add too much of one ingredient, that cake is going to turn out fine. You know, if you you make a a formula and you add too much of an ingredient in it, that can cause electrolyte disturbances in a baby. It can cause malnutrition. It can cause seizures. It can lead to even death, as we're seeing in these homemade formula recipes. So that's why we don't recommend it. Andrew, did you want to weigh in here? Yes, I do. I do. So, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of really important things to touch on. You know, the first thing is the potential risk of contamination, right? So formulas manufactured with good manufacturing practices in clean rooms with a high degree of stringency where every ingredient is stored and manufactured and handled and everything's under sterile condition. That is very different from you whipping some stuff up in your kitchen where it is not sterile. Um, Anything with carbohydrates or even amino acids or fat storages are going to be a potential breeding ground for contaminants. And and those contaminants specifically referring to um, microorganisms, so bacterial pathogens or fungal pathogens or things like that. Because just like those are nutrients for humans, they're also nutrients for microorganisms. And so it's very easy for things that are floating around in your kitchen to get into, you know, any sort of sugary liquid or powder that you're trying to make, you know, potentially feeding your infant. And as we mentioned, infants' immune systems are not fully developed yet. So they're going to be at higher risk for severe illness associated with any of these potential contaminants or or pathogens. Um, On top of that, a lot of these recipes are utilizing raw milks. And raw milk is not pasteurized. And pasteurization kills harmful nutrient microorganisms that could be contaminating your products. And so common contaminants of raw milk are things like E. coli bacteria, listeria, salmonella, brucella, campylobacter, and cryptosporidium fungi. The data demonstrate that those who consume raw milk, um, there's approximately a, a one in six chance that you're going to become ill with some sort of bacterial parasitic infection. And that rate is going to be higher amongst people who have, you know, lower functioning immune systems like infants who do not have a fully developed immune system. If you actually look at disease outbreaks associated with raw milk, 59% of them are associated 
are involving children under the age of five. So that's a particular concern on top of that. There's a common misconception that raw milk is an immune-boosting food. That's not a thing. You know, you always want to be using pasteurized products, but on top of that, you don't want to be mixing these formulas, as, as Dina so eloquently noted, you know, in your kitchen. Well, and even putting aside raw, which you you just eloquently <laughs> described, you know, why, why that's problematic. I'm not going to name this person, but uh, she has hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, and she has this published homemade baby formula recipe that has thousands upon thousands of likes. This is for infants, and I'm not going to read the full recipe, but it includes... Uh, two cups of, of, of raw, whole grass-fed milk. Again, even putting the raw aside. Yep. She also recommends two tablespoons of heavy cream, a, a whole list of other things, infant probiotics, nutritional yeast flakes, cod liver oil, sunflower oil, extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, butter oil, collagen protein, lactose. I mean, a bunch of things. Anthony and Dina, correct me if I'm mistaken. It's been a few years since I've had an infant. Sh- putting us, let's say pasteurized. We're now we're not even talking about raw. Should infants be consuming pasteurized milk? Their gut is still developing. And even when we talk about formula or breast milk, the formula protein is adjusted to allow the child to tolerate it. What you're putting the child at risk for when they have milk, especially in early infancy, is it can lead to uh, irritation and and potentially iron deficiency and anemia. Yeah, because I I just, for some reason, and maybe it was at six months or or one year, I just remember hearing that I, you can't give the, you shouldn't be giving the baby milk to drink until a certain age. So it was just really jarring to see that people are making these, these homemade formulas with, with, with milk and with, um, cream. And I don't, I, it just, that is concerning. And I think, you know, generally speaking, you know, as Anthony just noted, you know, cow's milk might, or cow's milk proteins might be the base for formula, but if you're taking just cow's milk out of your refrigerator, um, you know, it it might not have the appropriate nutrients like iron or vitamin E. Often cow's milk has higher sodium or potassium compared to breast milk or compared to what would be in formula. And of course that could all cause gastrointestinal issues aside from the risks of contamination and and all those sorts of things too. All right. So I want to go back just for a minute to the topic of European formulas, because we did... We did a post on European formulas, caught a lot of heat for it. <laughs> and then people were were telling us, you know, no, now the US FDA is allowing some European formulas in the US. So Dina, can you kind of talk through this update? You know, how can people tell the difference between what's legal and not legal when it comes to European formula? Um, and then we'd just love to pick both of your brains about any recommendations um, for parents parents who are struggling with infant feeding and don't know where to turn for resources. So can we focus first on the USDA allowing some European formulas? Sure. This happened with Operation Fly recently. Obviously, it increased the you know the stock of formula that's available. Um, so there's two sites that have been updated information on which formulas are being imported through the FDA. Um, and the first is the FDA website, which lists all these formulas as well as provides a copy of the label. Um, and the second is um, Nasfigan, um, which also categorizes the formula by type. You know, so parents and healthcare providers can go on there and you know can tell which is being legally imported and is now FDA reviewed versus these third-party sites, which are you know, are still allowing the illegal importation of formulas. And also if you buy them at major retail stores, you know, like 
Target or Whole Foods that they're going to be legally imported. So Anthony, do you have any advice for parents of infants who are trying to navigate infant feeding? You know, I know we covered a lot of ground in this episode, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure you get a lot of nervous parents, um, you know, in your office. So like, what what is some advice that you offer? Any takeaways that you really want to emphasize for folks? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things in our research when we um, asked the parents, did you speak with your pediatrician? The majority didn't speak to their pediatrician, right? And so I think as a parent, I can tell you, usually when the kid goes down, anytime you're Googling or you're, you're looking for information, really try to use reputable resources. So NASBEGAN is the North American Society of PGI. They have a GI Kids website that has up-to-date parent information that is peer-reviewed by pediatric gastroenterologists across North America. And then there is AAP, the American Care Pediatrics has healthychildren.org, which provides very objective, scientifically grounded educational materials. And write questions down and talk to your pediatrician. So if you find something online, ask your pediatrician and let them know so that at least we can work together and we know parents want to do what's best for their kids, but really is making sure that we're doing, we're, we're figuring out what is the most scientifically proven thing um, and not something that we may find on TikTok or, or, you know, or social media. TikTok as a source of mis- and disinformation? Never. <laughs> um, Dina, what about you? You know, we, we know a lot of parents are going to be tuned in. Do you have any advice, anything you wish that more people knew about infant feeding, anything that you can say to allay the concerns and the anxiety that we all naturally feel as new parents that you want to offer here? We all just want the best, you know, and it's, you know, it's hard as parents. We get that we're parents ourselves and, you know, we want you to come to us. We're your friend. As soon as a newborn comes to me, your baby is now my baby. I have just as much worry about your baby as I do my own kids. Your baby is my responsibility. So if something doesn't go wrong, I feel it too. It's not a nine to five job. I'm constantly waking up in the middle of the night worrying about patients and, you know, making sure I'm doing, making the right decisions for them, you know, so we're your sounding board and we want to do the best for your baby and you. So the, the dirty little secret is that you know, we want the baby to be happy and healthy and growing, but we also want the parents to be happy and healthy. So we support your feeding choice, you know, whatever that may be. And we're here to give you, you know, unbiased, correct information. And this is what we do. This is all we do. You know, we're not giving out you fashion advice. We're not movie stars. We're, you know, kind of formula nutrition geeks and we're here for you. Well, this has been so informative. I learned so much. Um, I wish I had listened to these two podcasts when I was a new mom. So really, Thank you both so much for joining us. Andrea, do you have any, um, you know, last minute thoughts, takeaways before you take us home? I mean, I would just echo the sentiments of everything that we've discussed here. You know, obviously the world of misinformation and disinformation is is very daunting and it's particularly rampant um, amongst new parent groups, uh, amongst social media targeting new parents. It can be really hard to navigate and really stressful because, you know, you're trying to keep this tiny human alive and healthy. So, you know, again, listen to actual experts. Don't get health and medical advice off of TikTok or Instagram or any of these, you know, uncredible sources and understand that everyone's, you know, you're doing your best. I was just, gonna, I was chuckling here because we're saying, don't take advice off Instagram. And it's like, we have an Instagram page. <laughs> 
Well, but we have sources. <laughs> Sorry. We cite I just everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I mean you you alluded to this, you know, it, it all it really comes down to credentials and expertise and that's why again we were so grateful to be joined by two experts in pediatric medicine on on this podcast and Andrea is an immunologist and you know my expertise in data science and being able to decipher the best available evidence you do I just I really want to remind folks that you know social media I feel like it really is such a double-edged sword because I there's so much misinformation and disinformation but that there are certain channels that can and should be trusted and you know we've shared tips on how to spot pseudoscience and as you just said, Andrea, you know, always make sure that any, um, you know, claims or recommendations are backed up by credible sources. And, you know, Dina, I think you you said it earlier that there, there's so much just general mistrust of the FDA. And I wish that people understood, you know, now just in the context of, of um, infant formula, how much oversight, how much regulation, how rigorous the safety testing. And, you know, like there's so much chatter about ingredients that are not necessary. All of these things are so closely <laughs> tested and regulated. You know, it disappoints me that people don't have more faith in our um, medical and scientific uh, organizations and, and establishments. But but I think that, that you guys did just such a great job of really walking through the details of, all, of everything. So we hope that we were able to clarify um, and answer questions that you had. So again, sincere thanks to Dina and Anthony. And we know we will be speaking with you guys. You know, we'll have to continue this conversation. Andrea, take us home. All right. Well, I just want to say thanks again to Dina and Anthony for joining us. And I hope all of our listeners got a lot of helpful information out of this. And again, if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We post content there periodically that is extended, and we regularly respond to questions and comments from our subscribers. The biggest perk, of course, is that you'll have access to our private Facebook group, our monthly live Q&As, and you also get to submit questions for our Heard from the Herd segments on our podcast. It's a $5 monthly subscription, and check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next episode, we are going to be talking about preventative health measures and the current health recommendations. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19, RSV, influenza, and all sorts of other science and health-related topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. (laughs) 